0: Welcome to the Sign Out
1: Podcast.
0: Here we interview individuals who are pursuing their passion and who want to share that story.
1: The day for my first jump, I was chomping at the bed. I felt like I could handle any emergency and ultimately did have to on my fifth jump, I had a failure. He stood up and he stomped down on that pedal and the most glorious sound I'd ever heard erupted from that machine. I simply did what I could do at the time, and I didn't look at all the things that were keeping me from it. I looked for the one thing that would allow me to do it.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 15 of the Sign Out podcast. As you're probably aware, I've been on hiatus for quite a while Uh, during COVID, kind of took a break, but we're relaunching this podcast. We're excited to be doing this in partnership with Outdoor by Four. So the podcast will still be the same sign out podcast, but we have a partner coming alongside of us, providing us some content and some excellent people to interview. So I'm excited about the relationship that we're forming with Outdoor by Four and Frank Ledwell, the publisher over there, to just bring us some really cool guests. Continue to dig into signing out, finding those folks who are pursuing their passion, seeking out adventure, and finding ways to enjoy life. So today I'm really excited. Um, to have Bill Dragoo on the podcast. I'm not going to go into a big, deep bio on Bill, because that's what we're going to talk about today. But I can say that this guy has done a lot in his life, whether it's motorcycles, airplanes, boats, um, trucks, you name it. He's been adventuring all over the U.S. and all over the world. So I'm excited to listen to his story, talk about what fuels his passions and what he needs each day to um, keep himself going. Bill, Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you um, coming along for the podcast,
1: Daniel. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to to be on your inaugural run, uh, or at least rerun. So here we go.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that. So, Bill, just first question: want to just get to know you a little bit? I mean, there's a pretty good history of, on the internet, honestly, of so a lot of accomplishments. But you know, to go back and figure out. What triggered in your life, or have you always been the guy that wanted to be outdoors? One thing I noticed in the bio um, when I was doing some research is you are an Eagle Scout, and that is a very long pursuit as a young man to attain that, and that's um, a very big accolade. But was this something, you know, outdoor adventure? Was this something that was always in you and you always were able to
1: pursue? It's it's kind of hard to describe. Um, the actual feelings that I had at at the beginning, but I do remember my first camp out as a Boy Scout, and I remember the cardboard boxes, there were plural, full of uh, beans and uh, other foods that we might need on our, I believe it was a two-night overnight camp. It probably all weighed about 80 pounds, not including my sleeping bag and my (laughs) tent that my mom sent me out the door with, Uh, but i I grew up in the country and, um, uh, you know, just being outside was natural. So it wasn't like I was seeking it. It just seemed like a part of what I, I wanted to do and uh, needed to do in various ways.
0: So from that time period, you just were always outdoor. Was your family supportive in that way of wanting to be outdoors as well? And kind of part of y'all's life growing up?
1: Well, yes, actually my mother had met someone who suggested that I get into the Boy Scouts and, So I went to my first meeting. And so you know my father wasn't around as I was growing up and I'm an only child. So as far as family, it was essentially my mother and my grandfather and my grandmother. And in the early days, uh, when we lived out in the country and we had a little uh, grocery store, gas station, garage, garden, pig farm, cattle, you know, whatever grandpa had had at the time to try to make a nickel with. Uh, I was a part of that and uh, chickens, I mean, you name it, it was all out there. I don't know if we had a goat more than about a week, but, uh, (laughs) but uh, yeah, so they were, again, it was lifestyle rather than go do this, you know, you might enjoy it. Um, You know, I think that as I came into my formative years, my mother was probably thinking in terms of keeping me out of trouble and associating me with good people. And that worked very well, especially through scouting. So I, I think there was some intention on her part there For me, it was just, oh, that sounds fun. Let's give it a try.
0: Yeah, I think being able to be raised in that environment where, like you said, when you're on a farm and you're out in the country and constantly doing things, you really learn a lot about hard work, um, perseverance and things like that, that, you know, come into play in all facets of your life. I think that's really important for those lessons. What other lessons would you have learned at that age that have really driven you through who you are today?
1: Well, the... Just kind of touching on the hard work aspect of it, my grandfather was um, uh, Irish and was a very hard worker. Um, You know, there's the term Dutchman's holiday, uh, which basically means we're going to go to work today. And I think Irishman's holiday probably is synonymous with that. But that's what we did. Uh, My grandfather, you know, as I mentioned, had a lot of different uh, types of occupation. Basically, he was a, a country entrepreneur. He would buy something if he thought he could sell it and make anything on it. Uh, whether that be a cow or, or a pickup truck or a, a water well drilling rig or whatever it might be. So when it was seasonal, we were out digging and planting the gardens and uh, watering. And I remember carrying two five-gallon cans. Uh, in one hand would be water that we had pulled up from the hand-dug well that my grandfather and I dug. Um, and then in the other would be a bucket of fertilizer. And it was the old-fashioned, you know, from the bottom of a of a cow <laughs> corral. Uh, fertilizer, and carrying that across the sand, barefooted, uh, the sand was hot, but, and then putting a little water, a little fertilizer, a little water around each of the plants that we planted in rows, and then seeing that come up um, over the, over the time that it took for whatever particular crop it was that we had planted, and learning those cycles of life, uh, again, in a natural environment was, uh, it was, I think, a lot of, of who I am now, And just being able to see ahead that what you do now matters later, whether it's what you say, how you treat someone, uh, the seeds that you plant in whatever way that might be.
0: I think that's so important. Um, I love hearing you say that, especially when you think of times in your life when it wasn't easy walking on that hot sand. And that's extremely difficult. But the fruit of that labor is, you know, here you have sustenance, you have food um, or whatever you're planting. And in different parts of our life where what we do today, we we may not ever see what those what the end's going to be of that result or the person we meet or the relationship that we invest in. We may not get to see the finally the full fulfillment of that. Um, But even the hard work and preparation of just anything, it's important to to do that.
1: Well, it is. And so much of what we have today uh, is not directly connected to what we do at this moment. Um, back then, you had to store up during the right times. I remember putting potatoes. You know, we would fill our pickup truck uh, with potatoes. The bed of the pickup with potatoes and bring them back. Then I would crawl underneath the house, and my granddad would would shove them into me or throw them into me, and I would spread them out. They couldn't be stacked. They had to have a little bit of room between them for air. But it was cool and under there, and it was a good place to keep potatoes. And of course, they actually, some would sprout even, which is surprising because of course, potatoes are used to growing where there is no light, but they would sprout sometimes underneath. And my granddad always liked getting those for the next season's planting, but we would crawl under the house and, and grab a few and come right. inside and boil them up or bake them or whatever, whatever it might be.
0: Now, w- was this in Oklahoma? Cause that's where you live today when you grew up? Yes,
1: uh, east, uh, just east of Norman. I'm dead center almost in Oklahoma, 17 miles south of Oklahoma City. And we were east of Norman, which at the time was in the country. It was in the, uh, what's called the cross timbers region of Oklahoma, the cross timbers you may be familiar. It uh, was a band of uh, briars, just thickets, blackjacks, oaks, you know, post oak that uh, spread through the uh, area of uh, kind of Eastern Texas up through Eastern Oklahoma. Uh, may have touched a little bit on western Arkansas, and then just ran on up through Kansas. Um, they, that was considered the cast iron forest uh, back in the day when people were trying to cross the country here. So that was the area where I grew up. My granddad literally had to to carve out his little little plot of land there uh, with among those uh, blackjacks, oaks, briars, and things. And so that was my playground. Uh, we dug underground forts out there, and uh, smoked vines. We would pull the the little grape, we called them grape vines. I don't know what kind of vines they were. We would pull them off the trees and we would light the end of them. And uh, we did light a few fires that weren't <laughs> intentional back then too. So fortunately, no one's house burned down.
0: I think all young men enjoy lighting fires around the house. I, I certainly had an area uh, behind my house where we could go and just run free. And that was, uh, we loved doing all kinds of, we loved just burning things and, you know, making small fires and do things like that. So growing up in Oklahoma, you know, that's not. if I'm thinking about just outdoor adventure, I don't honestly think of going to Oklahoma, right? I think it's underrated because people don't, I think people think of the red dirt and probably don't know the forest side like you're talking about. I think that's interesting. Um, when you get into the state, there's a lot more there. But when you started, you know, today, you, if I search your name, I'm going to see a lot about motorcycles. What was your beginning into motorcycles?
1: Well, I was uh, a young man, actually out there, out east of Norman. And um, I was in grade school, uh, probably at the little country school, Falls, maybe third grade or so. And uh, one of uh, my neighbors, uh, actually a fellow who lived in a house, my granddad, among his entrepreneurship, he had like three little rent houses. And uh, people would come and people would go. So I would meet different types of people there. But one uh, fellow who was older than me had a little Yamaha. And I remember it was uh, kind of a metal flake blue uh, with uh, the chrome fenders and the chrome um, handlebars. And I'd never really seen chrome or recognized that I'd seen it before. I'm sure it was on the mirrors of our pickup truck or something, but didn't recognize it as such. And when he started that motorcycle, a little two-stroke motor up, uh, it just, it got me in the the pit of the stomach. Uh, And that was actually my second exposure. Uh, That's in a good way, by the way, that it got me. But my previous exposure was at about four or five years old one of the fellows who lived in one of those houses was gene wagner he was the first motorcycle cop in norman oklahoma wow and he had his own harley in addition to his his police unit and i remember him giving me a ride on that bike and he pulled out this big pedal that looked like a bicycle pedal and stood up i was sitting on the back holding on to the metal rail behind his seat And he stood up and he stomped down on that pedal and the most glorious sound I'd ever heard erupted from that machine. And that was my first ride. So any exposure I had after that was just, it was like uh, I already had this infusion that was easy to trigger. And anytime I saw a motorcycle, anytime I had an opportunity to throw a leg over one, whether that be as a passenger or what, then it was exciting to me. And when I was nine years old, uh, my mother and I had moved into town for a period of time. And the fellow across the street, two fellows across the street, had identical Honda 305 Dreams. And I remember riding with them. And that was the first time I had ever, ever really handled the motorcycle uh, as much as I could. That is steering the motorcycle primarily. I don't remember if my feet even reached the pegs. I don't think so. But sitting on the front, we were going around these curves on State Drive and uh, which is a a Central State Hospital, was the mental hospital that was in Norman at the time. Uh, But I remember leaning into those turns. It was the only curvy road around and just pressing on that handlebar and pressing on the other handlebar to make it turn. And so I learned about countersteering before I ever long before I had ever heard the word. And I couldn't get enough of it. I never considered the, the risk of a contact patch. In fact, I remember being warned by the fellow who was, uh, who on the motorcycle. That's enough, Bill. That's enough.
0: <laughs> I was, it's hard if you've never ridden a motorcycle before, it's hard for folks to understand that feeling. And I was talking to my best friend the other day and his son just recently got into motorcycling. And he was trying to explain to my friend, this is his dad. He's like, dad, you just don't understand like how free you feel when you get on the motorcycle, it's just, the, and that's what I tell people. I was like, unless you've been on one, it's hard to understand what it does to you, whether it's the first time or, you know, if you've been riding the whole of your life, every time you get on them, it's just, they're so fun.
1: I think we love power. We're addicted to power. And you mentioned, uh, you know, young men liking to light fires in the early days. And I think that was part of that was that I could create something so extraordinary and so uh, amazing by lighting a fire whether it be a campfire or, or setting the field on fire so with a motorcycle it was also that that uh, visceral feeling of uh, power and it didn't matter how fast it was or how how much horsepower the motor actually had especially in those early days it was blinding so the ability to move forward without having to pedal was just an incredible thing shoot pedaling was amazing when i got my first bicycle at uh, five years old. But moving on from that, you know, to bigger motorcycles, I mean, it didn't, didn't take long before I realized that, you know, you can really go fast and enjoy this. And I I found myself into racing before long.
0: So just like motocross racing.
1: It was motocross. Uh, I had a friend um, who was uh, a year older than me, a year ahead in school. His name was Norman Heineke. And uh, I still have that friend, Norman's still around. And he was, uh, really really super fast he won the oklahoma state championship in 1970 and i i remember just looking up to him so much he wasn't always nice to me we became best friends but he was never very nice to me it didn't seem like but i might not have been as the best friend too but we just had this in common so we did these things together and we would go and ride together and he was an expert level racer and, uh, with my, the first motorcycle that I had, that was race worthy, I had, uh, purchased from him and we, I, it, he was my challenge and it wasn't long within the year I was beating Norman and that was, uh, uh, it was shocking to me. He was a natural, I had to work at it. And, uh, it was, you know, I became expert level and, uh, did well in, uh, in the state championship series.
0: Do you remember what bike you were racing on then?
1: My first motocrosser was a 1968 Yamaha um, 125 Enduro, an AT1 Enduro with an electric starter. And I remember lining up on the starting line at um, um, Yukon Raceway up uh, northwest of Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. And there were about 22 or three racers on that line. I looked down the line in both directions and it was pretty intimidating. And everybody was kickstarting their motorcycles. And I was sitting there with a 12-volt battery and an electric starter, and I thought, there is no way on God's green earth that I am touching that starter button. (laughs) So I pulled out my Kickstarter and started my own motorcycle like a man, like the rest of them were doing, and came home with my first trophy that day after my first race. It was a third-place trophy. I ended up getting uh, a third and, uh, let's see, a fourth and two seconds, I believe, or something like that.
0: How long did you end up racing for like that?
1: I raced. That was I started at fourteen, and I raced up until uh, about the time I graduated from high school. Um, right along in there, I discovered uh, girls and airplanes and aircraft mechanics, and uh, moved on into other things.
0: Well, I saw that you are a certified pilot. So, what led to that adventure?
1: Well, as um, as a young man in high school who was not really great at academics. Uh, anything that would get me out of the, the regular school routine was okay by me. And we had a votech school, vocational technical school uh, that was um, just north of the Norman area here. It was about a 20-minute drive. And I signed up for aircraft mechanics because it just sounded interesting. I had flown once before with a friend of my mother's, uh, when I was very young, I couldn't even see over the uh, the windscreen of the airplane, but I could see the propeller going around. And then when he would turn, I could see out the window on the side. And that was like motorcycling. I couldn't get enough of that. Here was that third dimension. And in on motorcycles, it seems like I was always seeking that third dimension too, the vertical rather than just the, the X and the Y axis with the Z axis. And so airplanes gave that to me quite easily. Well. Since aircraft mechanics was associated with airplanes, I thought, well, this is as good a way as any to get into it. And uh, so I went in my last two years of high school to uh, uh, the power plant mechanics training and uh, acquired my uh, power plant rating. And then uh, shortly after high school, uh, immediately after high school, I went to Spartan School of Aeronautics in Tulsa. And completed my airframe, so that made me a certified A.M.P. That is, airframe and power plant mechanic. And I came back to Norman, began to work as a aircraft mechanic. While I was at Spartan in Tulsa, I also uh, met a fella Neil Smiley, uh, one of my uh, fellow students there. He was a year older than I was, but he was a flight instructor, and so I took my first lessons with him. Continued on, became a flight instructor, a certified seaplane pilot. Um, Glider uh, pilot, commercial glider pilot, and uh, multi-engine land, and uh, just anything that I could do. It seemed like I, you know, I would find these things that were uh, achievement-oriented, and I would seek to to hit that goal and gain the credential for it. Uh, it wasn't just a matter of experiencing flying or whatever it might be, but I wanted to be certified to do whatever it was that I was doing. So that just became a theme.
0: Now you mentioned seaplane, did you live somewhere where you were doing that or how did that seaplane come about? That's a pretty special uh, you know, type of plane to fly.
1: It is. Uh, and there are two distinctive types of seaplanes. There are floats and then uh, amphibious airplanes, which the, the hull of the airplane, the fuselage is, is the hull of a boat. And what I flew were uh, airplanes on floats. So my rating is considered single engine C. Um, and a buddy of mine who owned a, an airfield just south of town, a private airstrip little grass strip, uh, Ben McCaslin, I would uh, go down and uh, we, we were skydiving there at his place. And so I met Ben through that. And I, Ben had a Cessna 195, which is a radial engine, tail dragger. Uh, it was a luxury airplane in its day, five passenger airplane and a gorgeous machine. Uh, and so we would fly that together and we decided to make this trip over to Hot Springs, Arkansas on Lake Catherine and at the Anthony Island seaplane base. Uh, we both got our certification for flying, flying floats. Wow.
0: I've, that's a beautiful area. Lake Washita is one of my favorite lakes to go to over in Arkansas. I love that. Yeah, I, I had an experience of my father had a Cessna two-seater when I was a kid and we're i lived down in Katy, and he was president of the bank and he would go inspect the rice crops um in his airplane so it's a fun experience as a little kid of flying in a really small plane and i haven't ridden him once since that was that small so i don't know what it would feel like today <laughs>
1: well it you know it's, it might feel sketchy a lot depends on the day and the pilot and then the airplane itself um, right but uh you know i with with airplanes it's like and I actually developed this phrase uh, as a flight instructor that I share with my students now as a motorcycle instructor and that is uh, with your passengers what thrills you terrifies them so uh, you know I became a charter pilot and flew professionally for a few years in addition to teaching in airplanes and I learned to be very, very smooth and very cautious on the controls, not nervous cautious, but cautious in a way that I would anticipate what might be about to occur, whether that be turbulence ahead or uh, a need to turn. I would try to turn early enough that I could make them uh, just a very slow controlled turn and keep the airplane coordinated so that all of the G-forces that we would feel in the airplane were directly centered in our bodies rather than leaning right or leaning left, too much rudder, not enough rudder or whatever in the airplane. And uh, so, yeah, so I I would try to teach people to ride motorcycles that way, uh, the way that I tried to teach them to fly airplanes, Uh, very smooth, very deliberate, um, anticipate what's gonna happen, practice enough that you know what's gonna happen and then uh, they can maybe mimic, mimic that too. Uh, and we'll share that legacy with those people that they uh, take for their first rides rather than terrifying someone and turning them away.
0: You just casually mentioned while you were skydiving. So there has to be a story there if you, um, as the next adventure of things you've done now.
1: Well, I, when I started school at, at uh, Oklahoma University, I uh, started in their engineering program, which I did not finish, but I started in the mechan- mechanical engineering program and studied that for a bit of time. But what was more interesting to me were some of my classmates. And one, Fred Leslie, was a um, um, jump master. And I wound up taking a a two-week training course, which is almost unheard of today for skydiving. Uh, Now, it's you go out on the jump jump zone and uh, drop zone, and you take a quick, maybe an hour or two session, and they take you out of an airplane. But it's usually tandem in the day that I did it, uh, they would teach you how to jump, and it was more military style. You would learn the PLFs, the parachute landing falls, and all about your rigging, and the history of skydiving. There was a lot to it that we learned, and, uh, you know, by the time it came the day for my first jump, I was chomping at the bit. I felt like I could handle any emergency, and ultimately did have to on my fifth jump. I had a failure, um obviously not a a complete failure I was able to recover from it that's good Uh, probably wouldn't be here but uh uh yeah so it was just something that again intrigued me my mother thought I had a death death wish with these things that I wanted to do but it was more just a, a zest for life
0: well I see in the background you got a picture there which looks like a picture of a young family so at some point um your adventures also took the Oh, yeah, on the other side. Yeah, your adventures uh, took um, – I know you have a partner because I've read quite a few stories about you, your wife, who has really opened these adventures. So how do you keep going on these adventures and then you, you're married and, and kind of keeping that side of your life
1: going? Well, truth be told, you should be, you should be interviewing Susan, not me. Uh, she is much more adventurous than I am, believe it or not, uh, in her own way. She's an outdoors person, uh, hiking, climbing, backpacking. She leads, uh, hikes and uh, backpacking events through our church, uh, women's groups, uh, co-ed groups. Uh, in fact, she's over there today doing some things, but, uh, she's, uh, she's ex- exceedingly fit and, uh, just loves the outdoors in, you know, in tremendous ways. So I would say selection is a big thing, you know, um, she is a, She's a very good partner for me in what I do. She encourages what I do when I do need to leave because she understands what I need. So uh, whether that be with the motorcycles or if I wanted to go back to flying, um, it's uh, she's never discouraged me. I re-entered sailplane flying a few years ago. Uh, I was tasked with doing a story for Oklahoma Today magazine, and I did it on flying, and I called it the air up there. But yeah, so I got back into the sailplanes for a, a period of time, but it was it's all through her encouragement. She actually entered me in a uh, Ultimate Outsider contest one time. I was away on a trip out in uh, California on the motorcycle, and I came home. And she said, uh, I need to tell you something. And I thought, oh boy, here it comes. And uh, although everything had been good between us up until that point, and uh, she said, no, I entered, entered you in this Ultimate Outsider contest through Backwoods Equipment Company. And I won the the initial levels of it, and then basically um, one other fella and myself were selected to go to uh, Mount Everest base camp uh, through this this Ultimate Outsider contest. And um, I we, we were able to arrange it so that she could go with me, and uh, you know the training and all for, for that. She was right beside me, or I should say, I was right beside her on that because she actually led the way on that that training for outdoors. It's a long way around to answer your question about uh, uh, how I did that within my family uh, environment. But uh, when my family was younger, when my boys were younger, um, it I probably well, there's no probably to it. I pushed too much for my adventures. Um, I was racing mountain bikes, and I took it very seriously. I won two state championships back to back, and it was. to the exclusion of some of the time and attention that I should have given to my family. I would love for them to have spent more time with me doing that, but they had their own things. So there's there's a little bit of sadness with that too. Uh, it created some strife and turmoil and a division in our family. So uh, the wanderlust never went away from the beginning, but I have come back around full circle and uh, now my wife is very supportive of what I do and uh, life is good.
0: Well, I appreciate you being really candid and sharing just that aspect of you know how you do have to maintain when you're in you know this family structure. You know you have these relationships to maintain while you're still trying to pursue your adventure. You know, one thing I would like to get your opinion on and talk about is you have a lot of incredible stories. I mean, hiking to Mount Everest base camp, winning state championships and mountain biking, um, airplanes, motorcycles. I think some people could possibly hear that and be like, man, he's just done all this crazy stuff and all these awesome adventures. I could never do that. But uh, w- what's your response when you hear that? Because I think maybe, you know, we've talked about hard work, but also think that one person's adventure, um, for some person, if they just rode their motorcycle around their neighborhood, that might be the thrill of their lifetime. And for you, it was hiking to Mount Everest. But when people ask you, you know, when you're talking about, well, I could never do that, what would your response be to that?
1: Well, what I, I want to clarify that was Mount Everest Base Camp. I did not go right. at the top, right? I yeah, yeah, I know okay, you, got, you gathered that. I, I but I wanted to clarify for the audience right. that no, I am not a summit person for Mount right. Everest, uh, don't presume or pretend to be, but um, uh, although Base Camp is no small thing, but how did I do it when I did it? You know, it was one thing at a time, uh. It was taking my 22 rifle at uh, you know eight years old and walking through the woods and and uh, trying to to shoot birds and eat them you know raw that it's a miracle I didn't get sick, but uh, getting lost during that trip and being so excited because uh, I was now going to have to survive and I, I was the master of my own destiny at that time. Um, I just enjoyed doing these things that were were exciting that were beyond the scope of, of the norm. I didn't mind working and I, I did my stint uh, working in the automobile business, uh, working hard as a service manager, a salesman, sales manager, whatever was necessary in that business that supported my family through my, my boy's upbringing, that was, that was all good. But I simply did what I could do at the time and I didn't look at all the things that were keeping me from it. I looked for the one thing that would allow me to do it, and in most things that we want to do, we are self-defeating. Uh, it certainly wasn't that I had money, because we didn't. My mother was a secretary at Central State Hospital. Um, I recall her. I think towards the latter years of her working there, she made six hundred and I believe it was twenty-five or forty-five dollars a month, take-home pay, and you know that just wasn't a lot of money. So, the things that we did, you know, I mowed lawns and did what I had to do to get what I wanted. I worked at the Sonic Drive In for 65 cents an hour to buy my first motorcycle. Um, You know, I just sought a way to do what I want. And I think that at the time, as I was growing up, it was, we didn't have obviously internet. Uh, We didn't know what all the opportunities were that were out there that we could take on. And so when I found something, uh, trap shooting, you know, uh, Earl Johnson was uh, in 1966, the world champion trap shooter. He lived three miles from us. He would come by and pick me up and take me out and teach me how to shoot shotguns. And that was my thing for that period of time. I was, I was just totally immersed in that. Uh, whatever it was that I could take on to do, I would largely immerse myself in it. And I wasn't distracted so much by the other opportunities. I think that is more of a challenge these days that we want to experience things uh, peripherally rather than completely. And so we have a lot of knowledge about a lot of things, but not as much experience with anything in particular uh, as maybe my generation had or as those who are more dedicated to what they do are now.
0: One thing you've mentioned is you've mentioned, I think, four to five men and different examples whether they were friends or in the case of the trap shooter a mentor how important were those men in your life especially early on
1: they were what facilitated my doing these things uh Earl Johnson was one my grandfather was certainly a kingpin in this because I learned to work in so many different things because he did so many different things and um you know my scout masters um, people who were uh, already experienced in the field of aircraft mechanics or pilots, flight instructors. Benny Blaylock, who was, uh, he owned Oklahoma helicopters. He was an FAA designee. Uh, A designee is one who is certified by the the Federal Aviation Administration to give check rides for uh, flight certifications. Benny became a very good friend and a close mentor of mine. He passed a few years ago now. But um, these men were essential to me because young men then and now are attracted to uh, people who share a common interest or they become interested in whatever that person's interest is. And it become, it can almost become like a cult leader. It can become a cult leader. I was fortunate not to get caught up in anything like that. But the things that I did do, uh, I found experts in the field and they took me under their wing I think they saw that I was a a lone kid, uh, mom, no dad. Once we moved into town, uh, my grandfather wasn't as involved in my life. I would go out and help him do things, repair his tractor and things like that. Um, as I learned to do those things. So I think having mentors in life is extremely important. In fact, I had written something on Facebook a while back about mentorship, um, that, that addressed that. And, uh, you know, men need mentors, women do too. And mentors can be men or women for either one. But I think typically for a young man, having an older male who is uh, qualified, capable, dedicated to what the values are that are uh, of interest to the young man, and certainly good values, that's a good place to be. And we don't have enough of that, I think.
0: Yeah, I think the importance of community in whatever your interest is. Um, you, you can't overlook that. It's just so important to be around others that have your common values and then the ones that can mentor you and push you to that next level. I mean, when I think about all the things that you've done in your life, I would suspect that through your adventures, you've dealt with fear and uncertainty and things. Um, you know, maybe I'm not good enough to do this part of it. How would you, how have you dealt with those over time? Cause I mean, I, they're, you know, getting lost in the woods for you is exciting, I'm sure. But I'm, I would think that you've been on some adventures where maybe you were scared or just not sure what was going to happen next.
1: You know, and there are different kinds of fear. In fact, I'm writing an article right now for Ride Texas Magazine uh, about fear in my dark tips. I have a, a regular uh, uh, column in there and it just it talks about adventure riding how to's. And fear is a is a very limiting factor in our achievement, our ability to succeed in whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish, whether that be a, um, a hands-on skill or uh, a place we go, a thing that we do, something that we experience with someone else. Um, for me, I did feel like I was less than some of those who did what it was that I wanted to do but it just drove me to be better and early on I didn't really seek to be the best at any particular thing I don't think but I did want to win and whether it was a three-legged race with my buddy Vester Adams in uh, second or third grade out in that country school and we strapped our legs together with a belt and ran you know I would find ways to go the fastest or win the contest and so I don't think I allowed fear to, to hold me back as much. The fear that I had more was of uh, embarrassing myself and trying to do something well than it was of being injured or uh, uh, maybe even a failure.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes failure can definitely hold us back or fear can hold us back. Um, and I've found that, and I think you can attest to this, even through mountain bike racing, that you can push yourself far beyond you ever expected. Um, when you think you're tired, how much more your gas tank has, and your body can just uh, turn it on for you and keep going. So, what, what if you don't mind me asking, what age were you when you were doing your mountain bike racing?
1: Mid to late forties. Yeah. Wow, wow. That's
0: um, that's where I am today. Um, my last time I was doing mountain bike racing, I was in my early twenties, so it was a much different time frame. When you so today. Um, And how I came across your name, even from, you know, Frank told me about you. And then also I told you before we started the conversation, just I had done some adventure riding and came across um, you as an instructor for adventure riding. So I know adventure motorcycles pretty well um, just from, you know, riding them. But for those that don't know what adventure motorcycling is, talk about that just a little bit. And then if you would talk about how you got into becoming an instructor of that.
1: Okay, so what is adventure riding? Um, You know, interestingly enough, I had this conversation with a man named Rudy Duran. Rudy was Tiger Woods' first golf coach. Wow. And he was a personal friend. He and his wife, Beth, were friends of Susan and myself. And we were having brunch at La Baguette, a little French bakery just down the street from us, after church one, one day. And Rudy asked me about adventure riding. And I thought, here is Tiger Woods' first golf coach, a man who wrote, There is a Tiger in Every Kid, asking me about the thing that I'm passionate about. How do I give him a a quick and pat answer? And so I wrote a story called, Are You a Real Adventure Writer? And in this story, I used three caricatures um, to present the the photo image uh, or what would be the visual image of the story. One was George Wyman, who in 1903 rode a 1902 California motorcycle across the United States, uh, the first transcontinental crossing by motor vehicle. Another was Lois Price, who uh, a lot of people know Lois. She's uh, uh, this uh, just very energetic, uh, effervescent uh, British woman who rode her Yamaha XT 225 from from the Arctic Circle to Tierra del Fuego, so I had a caricature of George Wyman and Lois drawn by an artist friend of mine, Adam Stevens, and then I had a caricature of the uh, quintessential adventure man with the uh, cool-looking cowboy hat, kind of the Stetson hat, the star on his chest, a gun on his hip, the uh, BMW roundel on his shoulder, uh, smoking a little uh, cheroot, little short cigar, and uh, kind of clenched in his teeth with the steely sun, sunglasses on, riding a beam off of a, of a motorcycle. And so the question was, which of these is the real adventure rider? And the story title was, Are You a Real Adventure Rider? And I, this was all spawned by Rudy's question. What is an adventure rider? And so I'm thinking to myself, what is it? And adventure is what you feel inside. It's what it is to you. So whether it's a matter of riding your motorcycle down some twisty back road or canopied uh, forest roads uh, that's near your home, or it's traveling from pole to pole, uh, it's what you feel inside, and no one can describe that for you. I may have gotten a little off track from your question with that, but um, yeah, it's it's an indescribable feeling is adventure, Uh, and adventure riding is using the machine that you have available equipped as best as you can equip it. And there are all kinds of, there's all kinds of direction out there on how to equip it. But uh, it doesn't require so much as it does an attitude to go out and seek and to, to enjoy those adventures.
0: I grew up riding mountain bikes. And like I said earlier, did some racing in my early 20s. So I feel comfortable riding trails on a mountain bike. And a few summers ago, I was in Colorado with my buddy and he had an XR200 Honda, which is a pretty small dirt bike. And so we were out um, on the Western Slope in Colorado riding through trails. And I felt really comfortable. I actually felt like I could translate some mountain bike skills to this motorcycle riding because the bike was so small and light. You could honestly throw it around. I was like, well, this is, you know, I, I felt really comfortable. I was going up and down all kinds of crazy mountains. And then a year later, we go and rent um, some adventure bikes. So I jump on a Honda Africa Twin and do a long weekend ride in Colorado. And it was mainly gravel roads, nothing too technical, but going up and down mountain passes with you know rocks and just some sharp turns. And then I realized, oh, this is a much different ball game. Going from a large you know 900 cc or, or being on a smaller 200 cc, going to the 900 cc motorcycle being very high off the ground, I realized that my skill set, for the most part, didn't translate like I would expect it would. And that was a very new um, adventure that now I wish I have your, I want to take your class because I realize how much different it is riding that big bike and how it wants to do so much more than I'm capable of letting it do.
1: It's it's true, Um, you know. You still you have the Africa Twin, is that?
0: Actually, I don't. I rented it for that weekend and loved it, but uh, I just where I live, I don't have as much um, riding like that. Obviously, here in Houston, so I never went and uh, purchased the Africa Twin. Here, I ride a seventy three. Honda CB350 is my motorcycle.
1: That's amazing. My daughter-in-law has one. Yeah, it's cafe would out. Anyway, we could start down that road if you want. I just (laughs) bought two British bikes within the... Well, actually, I bought one and my daughter-in-law bought one, two Triumph uh, 250, Trophy 250s. And uh, we're we're restoring those right now. Well, mine doesn't need restoration and hers is taking a little work. And I've got a Norton and some BSAs that I'm working on as well. But uh, back to your point about the the difference between the uh, smaller motorcycle and the adventure bikes there is a distinct difference and although everything that I did in the past trials and motocross racing woods riding that all translated to a degree to my uh, current level of adventure riding it's not a direct correlation uh, because of the kinetic energy that you're dealing with there's so much mass in motion with those big bikes if you try to ride them um, as you would ride a smaller machine you can get hurt They don't slow down as quickly, they don't turn as quickly, uh, they don't accelerate as quickly. Uh, Traction is typically pretty good, you know, uh, going over things and through technical terrain. Because of the weight and the bearing down on the tires, they do well in that regard. But, um, you know, I'll give credit to Jimmy Lewis on the, um, who's also an instructor, those who might not know him, but he's a world famous, world champion, multifaceted uh, uh, rider. But he talks about dealing with the the weight of these big motorcycles versus little ones. You just don't go as fast. doesn't mean you can't go quickly, but you can't go as fast on those bikes safely as you can on a smaller, lighter machine, and you can't get into as rough a terrain uh, as safely as you can on these large machines. That said, they are incredibly capable still. We would do uh, two friends of mine, Mick Williamson and Jason Houle, uh, do what are called hell weeks, and there's a story of mine uh, published with uh, uh, RevZilla, their online uh, presence, and if you looked up Bill Dragoo, RevZilla, hell week, um, you would find a story there on, uh, on riding Colorado's toughest passes, and it's just the beginning of that adventure for us. Uh, I only had so many words to work with, but we were riding, you know, Black Bear Pass was just a warm up. I mean, we were doing some incredibly tough passes on those motorcycles. And uh, we started out with uh, 10 riders and five finished uh, due to a uh, broken, a couple of broken bones, uh, broken motorcycles, people who were smart enough just to give up and, and stop, uh, turn around, and go back, whatever. Uh, it, was, it was a rough time. I mean, we were taking big bikes in bad places. You don't have to go in places that bad. So if you have a modicum of skill, you can really enjoy these big motorcycles because they go over the road well. And then they are good in, in technical terrain. Again, they're not a trials bike, they're not a, a woods racer, but they're very good still in certain types of technical terrain. Lockhart Basin, for example, in, the, in the Utah is a really, really tough technical area. And myself and a lot of my friends have been through Lockhart Basin uh, on big adventure bikes. So it can be done.
0: I want to hear, um, staying on adventure bike stories. I want to hear about your the 2010 GS um, race that you did in South Africa.
1: BMW Motorrad's Motorrad is the uh, motorcycle um, element of BMW. Um, they developed in 2008 a uh, an international competition, and it was based on um, the Camel Trophy. Some uh, older members of our society may remember that Camel Cigarettes hosted uh, year after year, a uh, competition in trucks. They were in Land Rover Defenders, these mustard yellow defenders with the big camel sign on the side. And they would go to uh, uh, interesting countries around the world that were had challenging uh, terrain. And you would have to get these trucks through the terrain. So it was a long traverse and then there would, they would come upon special test sections where you would have to cross a river or um, a ravine or get through a jungle or mud or sand or whatever it might be. You might have the, motor, have the machine break down and have to repair it. Well, this was done, the, the GS Trophy was done on the exact same theme. And in 2008, I had won the um, Rawhide Adventure Rider Challenge, which was, uh, I was out as a journalist uh, to cover the event and it was their second year for that event. And I was just to experience it from the perspective of a contestant and and write a story about it, three-day competition and I won the event. And so uh, put me in the kind of the crosshairs of BMW Motorrad and they invited me to to compete for the uh, GS trophy. Um, I made it up through the competition in Spartanburg, South Carolina. Uh, Six of us competed for the top three spots there. And I did not win my top spot there. I scored well in the riding competition, but there were other criteria. And so I came back two years later, the GS Trophy is in every two-year contest. um, And I won my place on Team USA. So it was through the technical challenges uh, on big motorcycles that we were, were pitted against one another within And then we were all sent to South Africa, Swaziland, and Mozambique to compete against, there were a total of 13 countries competing at that time. And yeah, so that's, that was the GS trophy. It was an amazing opportunity. It's an amateur event. It's not an expert level event, although uh, there are some ringers thrown in there, people who are truly experts that are that are uh, competing sometimes although they've bowed out temporarily or whatever they still compete makes it hard for the amateurs, but it doesn't matter if you win or not. It's just a tremendous honor to represent your country in a competition like that. And it uh, challenges you to become the best rider that you can possibly be.
0: Yeah. I think that would be very cool. I had the opportunity to visiting some friends in South Africa back in 2018. And it was just an amazing experience and a great country to get to see. Oh yeah. Uh, that's what actually led me to the outdoor by four because I came back and I saw this magazine on the newsstand. I was like, that looks like one that I would have seen on the newsstand in South Africa with the, just the way the cover is and bought it and which led me to meeting Frank. So your passion for adventure writing, um, you know, still goes on today because today you are an instructor. You have your own Academy. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, I'll, I'll give credit um, where credit is due. Uh, some years ago, as I was uh competing for the GS Trophy, uh, maybe even slightly before, right around that time, though, Skip Mascoro of Moto Discovery had asked me, uh, by the way, he lives not far from you. he lives in San San Antonio, leads tours uh, all across uh, the world, uh, Turkey, Cuba, Iran, you name it, he has led tours there, he and his company have led tours there. So uh, Skip and I met uh, uh, at I was riding a Harley Davidson down in Fredericksburg, Texas. And uh, he had walked up and was looking at my bike. And uh, so we, we struck up the early stages of a friendship then. And he had asked me to develop a curriculum and teach for him so that the people who went on his tours would be injured less. There are some people get injured on these off-road tours. And if they had some training beforehand, it would be helpful. People tend to overrate their abilities. And it's difficult for a tour company or tour, tour guide to um, assess those skills until you're actually on the tour. So having a training component to the the tour, I called them immersion tours, uh, where you train beforehand and then you you also train within the tour, was a real, uh, it was kind of a new concept and it was a great idea. Well, I developed this curriculum for Skip, but, but logistically it was difficult with me being in Oklahoma, him in San Antonio, and we never really got to put it to use until later. Now we do work together more. I work with many other tour companies as well uh, in similar ways. Uh, I don't lead tours, I co-lead or help or do the training for them. But having developed that, I sort of put that curriculum on the shelf and then I was invited to Colombia and Bolivia within two weeks of each other. Um, And part of this was because of uh, Carl Parker who owns uh, ADV Moto Magazine he had connected me with a fella in, I believe it was the one in Bolivia, with Sergio Bolivian uh, there to just to go down and ride with him and lead a tour or or, or learn a tour, a route, and uh, uh, then come back and write a story about it. And I did. I wrote the story for uh, Overland Journal Magazine and it was called uh, Wolfman in the Land of Butch and Sundance. So I had uh, gone to Bolivia with Sergio. Sergio's friend, Eric Hogan, who owns Wolfman Luggage, was a a school friend. Sergio had gone, excuse me, uh, Eric Hogan had gone to school in La Paz, Bolivia with Sergio. So the three of us did this tour. While I was in Bolivia, the people that we met there asked me to come back and teach them to ride these bikes well off-road. They were getting injured riding their bikes in the places they wanted to go. They had the money, but not the skill, to have these bikes and to go the places the bike uh, would uh, would potentially take them. So I began to go back and to teach in Bolivia using that curriculum that I developed for Skip Mascoro. Uh, A similar thing happened in Colombia with uh, Mauricio Escobar, Micho, and uh, his company Elephant Moto. And so these international tours and training became kind of a popular thing early on. And people here began to ask me, when are you going to teach here? And I thought, well, you've got Rawhide on the West Coast. You have the Performance Center on the East Coast. Um, How many schools do you need? Of course, now they're sprouting up everywhere, it seems. But, uh, and many of them are flashes in the pan. Uh, Many of them are people who ride well, but don't necessarily teach well. So there is some due caution for that. But um, that was just an evolution. I taught a class here in Oklahoma um, it was very hot during the time I taught it, but the participants loved it. I taught another one. I had double the participants, and it's just exploded over the past decade uh into Dart Dragoo Adventure Rider Training and what we do now.
0: Where can they find out information on that, Bill?
1: My website is BillDragoo.com. My last name is Bill D R A G O O. So BillDragoo.com. It's very simple. And we've just posted a couple of the spring classes. We, uh, our mission's a little different than the mission of, uh, I think, a lot of the people who do this. I'm retired from the automobile business, um, and I write. Uh, my wife and I do a few things to bring in a little bit of money here and there. But our mission is to provide affordable off-road training uh, for anybody who wants to d- improve their skills. I did go to uh, Hecklingen, Germany in uh, 2017 and I studied at their academy there to become a, uh, a, an internationally certified off-road instructor. There are only a handful of us in the United States who have ever even achieved that level of certification for instruction. And most of them are not teaching actively right now. There are. It doesn't mean there aren't good schools. Just because you aren't certified doesn't mean you aren't a good instructor or that you don't have a good, a good operation. But if someone has that certification, you can pretty well be guaranteed that they do teach well because the, the school in Hecklington Germany is not there to help you become an instructor. They're there to weed out the bad ones. Wow.
0: Well, I know that there's a lot more stories that we could talk about today. Um, I haven't had some written down that we hadn't even gotten to, but it almost feel like it's going to have to be a part two of this conversation to come back and maybe even come back with Susan as well. get the better half of the story but I do appreciate um, your time today taking out just sharing a little bit of insight into your life of adventure um, you know growing up in Oklahoma and turning that into your passion and to this day still pursuing that passion Um, I appreciate your time today Bill Um, any final words you want to say?
1: Well, likewise, I appreciate yours, Daniel. I appreciate being invited to do this. Uh, I would uh, welcome a part two for this. I think Susan's is worth a standalone by all means. <laughs> 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 I, I'm serious for you. She is, she is just an amazing individual. She's She's so humble that it may be like cracking an egg, but once you get it cracked, there's some some good stuff comes out. So, uh, but uh no, I, I wish you the best with uh, your the resurgence of your podcast and uh, your relationship with Frank. Frank does an outstanding job with the magazine. I appreciate him for connecting us. And uh, my wife actually edited his magazine for a number of years. She has uh, pulled back from editing a, a couple of different magazines that she worked with to complete a book that she's writing currently on the Butterfield Overland stage route, which we have researched extensively uh, from Arkansas across Oklahoma into Texas. So that's another story in and of itself.
0: Well, I think next time um, my goal will be to figure out what I can come to your class and then we can do face-to-face podcasting, um, which would be a fun time. So that will probably be the next goal. We'll figure that out hopefully sometime in the next year. And I think that.
1: We, could, we could work something out to your satisfaction on that.
0: Well, I, I appreciate that time. Thanks for listening to the Sign Out Podcast. And make sure you check out our website at signoutco.com. We have original design hats and t-shirts and stickers. So check those out. And make sure you check out Bill Dragoo's website at BillDragoo.com. That's B-I-L-L-D-R-A-G-O-O.com. Also, if you could please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, that really helps us out. And the intro and outro music was actually made by myself, Caleb J. Murphy. If you want to hear more, check out CalebJMurphy.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Sign Out Podcast is proudly brought to you by Outdoor by Four Magazine, a preeminent publication for responsible vehicle-based adventure travel, including overlanding, with family-friendly content that resonates with the broad audience of adventurers, whether in a 4x4 vehicle, on two wheels, in a canoe or kayak, or traveling by foot. Outdoor by Four Magazine's focus is on visual storytelling that appeals to the broadest range of outdoors enthusiasts while providing expert advice in the field, as well as dynamic photography and stories that inspire. You can pick up a copy of Outdoor by 4 magazine by visiting your local bookstore or by visiting the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com.